It's greener than the rest of Spain and even has a Celtic history. Coming up, we'll hear what makes the region of Galicia a surprising corner of Spain to explore. The pilgrimage to Santiago would be a good reason to go there and go across the whole state of Galicia. Most countries in Latin America were colonized by Spain. Marie Arana looks at what sets them apart from one another and what many of them need today. The rule of law, education, and the eradication of corruption. Those three things are the most fundamental. The New World Spice Trade changed the palate of Europeans. We'll start the hour ahead with a look at how paprika defines the hearty cuisine of Hungary. In Hungary, everything is called paprika. Let it be round, fat, skinny, red, yellow, uh, sweet and hot. And it was the Hungarians who grew the mild version of it. Spice up your world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. You can still see how colonial history from the Spanish conquerors still lives on in many Latin American countries. Coming up, author Marie Arana tells us how. We'll also explore the atypical Spanish region of Galicia, where the biggest tourist scene is with pilgrims walking to Santiago de Compostela. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with the role a little pepper from the New World plays in the tasty cuisine of Hungary. Note that today's interviews on paprika and Galicia were recorded just prior to the global shutdowns. Paprika is the backbone of Hungarian cooking as the crucial ingredient in chicken paprikash and hearty Hungarian stews. From mild to hot, we'll find out why this spice is so central to Hungarian identity, how to best buy some paprika on your trip, and we're going to learn how you can spice up your own meals as well. To get this education in Hungarian paprika, we're joined by two guides in our studio from Hungary, Anna Leonard and George Farkas. Anna and George, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Hi, it's a thrill to be here. Well, thank you for coming all the way from Budapest to uh, our studio here. It was a long here. trip. A long <laughs> trip. And we're going to talk about paprika. I mean, when we think of Hungary, we don't know a lot about Hungary sometimes, but we think of paprika. What's the connection? Actually, paprika is a strong connection because it is actually from the American continent, and it was uh, the physician of Cristoforo Colombo or Columbus who brought it to the old world, to of first not to Hungary, of course, but to Spain. Huh. But through the commercial roads of the Mediterranean Sea, it got to the Ottoman Empire. And when the Ottoman Empire extended its political power to Eastern Central Europe, we got not only bad things, but we also got good things like the paprika or the coffee. So paprika and coffee came as your time in the Ottoman Empire and paprika actually from America via Columbus. Actually, yes. So I like teasing our tour members and American tourists that why to travel here by flying through the Ah, but I like my paprika ocean. in Hungary. There's something romantic about having paprika in Hungary. And why does Hungary embrace paprika? What does it mean to a Hungarian? First of all, we have great microclimate, lots of sunshine. And what is very important, that when we got the paprika, it was a hot spice. And it was the Hungarians who grew the mild version of it. It is from the 1920s, when in a small Hungarian town, Szeged, it was kind of discovered. 
And since then, if you come to our covered market hall, you can always buy two versions, the mild paprika and the hot paprika. Okay. Now, George, when I go to Budapest, I always go to the big market hall. Right. What is the name of that hall again? Vásárcsarnok in Hungarian. Big market hall, the central market, market hall. hall. You yes. can't miss it when you're a tourist. No, no, no. It's, it's that's, incredible. That's the first one out of five, actually, that they built at the time. And what you're going to find is, uh, well, everything that a Hungarian cook would want to find, but right. you'll certainly find peppers. What are you going to see when you look for the peppers in the market? Well, actually, you're not looking for peppers. You're looking for paprika. Oh, paprika, yeah. that's right. Yes. So it's, it's already... <laughs> Because, well, there is, it is uh, basically a huge difference because many people don't realize that uh, in Hungary everything is called paprika. Let it be round, fat, skinny, red, yellow, uh, sweet and hot. So uh, I'm a little bit confused the th- then. So because uh, is it a pepper? Or, or It is a pepper, but we call it paprika. But okay. we also call the powder paprika. Yes, because when I think of peppers in my supermarket, we've got yellow ones and green ones and right. red ones. And that's, all of that we call paprika, even okay. if it's... Uh, any, any shape, really. Uh, and then you have it already powdered. If you're looking for the paprika that you cook with, yeah. it is powdered, yes. Okay, so and it's a very unique technique to powder uh, because uh, one of the things that you have to be extremely careful with, how you approach paprika. Once you grind paprika, after all the time you spent with it to become dry and ready to grind, you have to do it very slowly because as soon as you pick up speed, you burn the paprika. And that remains throughout its lifetime because once you come to cook it, again, you have to be very careful with it, not to burn it, because then you just have to start it all over again. Tour guides from Budapest, Anna Leonard and George Farkas, are filling us in on the importance of paprika in the cuisine of Hungary right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Okay, so when we're talking about this uh, paprika, and uh, I think it goes back to the days when spices were really important. I mean, spice was big money in the early days of trade. Even today. Today. But at that time, But yes. originally. Now, why, why was spices in general very important economically for people? Well, it was a very important product. It was expensive. At that time, it was not so easy to fly from one continent to other. A trip took months. But is it, was is a it a matter of making food more interesting or is it a matter of preserving food? Actually, um, uh, spices first got to the highest aristocracy, those who had the opportunity to get products from far, far away. And paprika also first was introduced for the highest aristocracy in Hungary. Mm-hmm. After, people realized it is not poisonous because first it was considered as a poison And when they discovered that it has healing effect, you know, it healed uh, cholera and scurvy, after it, they started to make its production, but it was a rarity, and it was very expensive. So So at first it was just for the very wealthy, and then you learned that it, it, it helped as medicine against scurvy and cholera. Yes, but also medication very often is a privilege of the wealthier class, not available for everybody. Well, some people would say that's the way it is in our country right now. Uh, I didn't want to say, you can't say <laughs> things like this. <laughs> okay, but you, but uh, eventually they learned the value of, of peppers and they, uh, paprika and they produced more of it. Yes, yes, and just like every uh, scientific discovery or uh, every product from other continents, it slowly got to the middle class and lower class, and it became popular in our country. Okay, now, George, you sound like you're a cook, and when you go to the market, you get your paprika. Yes. What are you going to cook? What's your favorite thing to cook with uh, paprika? Well, um, I think we need to just step back for a minute to understand that uh, you have two main streams of paprika when you're talking about the powder cooking paprika. So there is uh, hot and sweet. Mm -hmm. And even um, zooming out a little bit, you have uh, smoked and non-smoked. 
I think if you want to, uh, first of all, decide what you want to do, you want to cater to the family. Once you're catering to the family, you want to cook something that everyone is good to eat. Ah. Uh, so uh, mainly, I would say, um, 90% of Hungarian households will go for the... Uh, non-smoked sweet paprika which doesn't actually mean it is sweet it is a mild just uh, not taste. too hot exactly because then after you always have a chance to make it hot and then, by adding uh, more by, uh, by adding uh, spices uh, so we have something which is called Erush Pista Strong Steven uh, which is like a paprika paste and then you add a little more to your already cooked dish and then it becomes hot but the others can oh. actually enjoy so now you know you're looking for your uh, Uh, non-smoked sweet paprika and then you're going down the aisle like you're going down the streets of the market um, uh, stall after stall and then you're, you think you're gonna make a good choice by passing the first one the second the third going down the street and you're trying to find a good deal and then by the time you get down to the bottom of it you might realize that all of them are owned by the same family uh, it's a good business really It's a big business in, yes. in Budapest, I yeah. would imagine. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anna Leonard and George Farkas, two guides from Hungary, from Budapest. And we're talking about paprika, paprika in Hungary. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Anne from Nixa, Missouri, emailed us. And Anne writes, is it true that most of the paprika sold in Hungary is now imported from other countries? George, uh, what is the deal? You just were shopping for paprika Do you care that it was born, uh, raised in Hungary? Oh, of course you do, yes. you. Uh, what you want to do, especially as a local, just to flip the packaging and make sure that uh, the ingredients is 100% Hungarian. If you are a very traditional Hungarian family with uh, uh, grandma and uh, nannies and, and, and you know a, a big family background, then you're uh, uh, going down this, the stream of, of not buying paprika anywhere, but from the very source that your family has been using for years and uh, You wait for the date for that to be delivered and you're buying like three big bags for the next year's supply and then you make sure that you keep it in a tin can <laughs> in, a, in a dark, cool place. So it is a tradition uh, for some families. I mean, modern families uh, now actually do go down to the supermarket and pick one up. And again, how much paprika do you buy for the year? How much do you cook? Uh, and once you're buying paprika, I always uh, tell to my uh, guest two members, you need to decide what you're after. Do you just want to sprinkle a little bit on your fried eggs in the morning? Or do you actually want to make a goulash? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Big George and Sweet Anna. <laughs> and we're talking about paprika. Now, um, when you're when you're thinking about Hungary, we think about goulash. Tell me the, 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 the fine points of goulash. What, what makes a good goulash and how does that relate to paprika? Actually, I love goulash. And we say goulash, not goulash, ah, which is goulash. a bit tricky because um, we have this we have this letter in the Hungarian alphabet. Goulash is a rich soup which was originally made in open fire outside in the fields where there were shepherds and uh, other people who took care of the animals. So it is really not a kind of food to cook at home and to serve in restaurants. And that's why even today, if you go to a really good restaurant, very often they serve it for you in a small pot. And in case of goulash soup, we add uh, beef. But we can also make chicken goulash or yeah. turkey goulash. It's mm. possible, but the traditional goulash soup or is lamb. usually beef. Lamb, lamb. lamb. Finally, George, you sound like you've got this such a passion for goulash and it's such a sensitive <laughs> sort of it can't be this way it can't be that way if you do a blind test of uh, several different paprikas do you actually uh, 
what do you taste and what is good and what is not good? I think you're, you want to sort of look for the, for the value, like you're, you're tasted and, and how, like when you have a nice glass of wine, is it full-bodied? So you're actually looking for like a full-bodied, um, nice paprika. And again, based on your um, And if it's taste, old or if it's too burned or something, it's Then it's, it, it becomes it. like sour. It's or, disappointing. Uh, and it doesn't taste good. If you miss a step, if you make it too fast and you burn your paprika, some, some tend to overlook and continue, but then you just ruin all your ingredients. So like, um, you know, to put a big amount of beef on burnt paprika is actually um, a crime because you won't be able to eat it. Um, it's going to end up in a bin. You it know, will so, have uh, this sour taste. Yes. And but also I think what's, what's important just to um, acknowledge that gouache is a soup. So um, basically not a stew. And many, I think most parts of the world, when they talk about gouache, they think of a stew. Oh, they do. As to in Austria, if you ask for gouache, they serve you stew. Yeah. Oh, okay, so yeah. the real gouache that you'll get in Hungary is a soup. Well, we think that our gouache is the real one. Well, I mean, it is, I, actually, <laughs> I, I think it would be. But <laughs> bottom line, the most important thing is, I think it's fair to say, mm-hmm. life is too short for bad paprika. Oh, or bad gouache. <laughs> <laughs> George Farkas, Anna Leonard, thanks so much for giving us a little better appreciation of paprika and Hungarian cuisine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Understanding your history helps you better grasp the issues your country wrestles with today. Up next, Marie Arana helps us explore the influences on Latin America before and after the Spanish conquest, right through the pressures corporate interests exert there today. And later in the hour, get ready to explore Galicia in northwestern Spain. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In her book, Silver, Sword, and Stone, Marie Arana explores how a thousand years of history continues to live on in the lives of the people of Latin America today, and how understanding these three basic elements, silver, sword, and stone, can help to overcome the cultural divide between North and South America. Marie is the literary director of the Library of Congress, and she joins us from her home in Washington, D.C. Marie, thanks so much for being with us. Rick, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. First of all, Marie, what is Latin America? Latin America is virtually everything south of the Rio Grande. So you have Central America, and you have Mexico, which is North America, actually. You have Central America. You have the continent of South America. You have the Caribbean islands that are Latin American islands, mm. uh, Cuba and Dominican Republic. So it's, it's a pretty big space. So there's the United States and Canada, and then everything else in this hemisphere would be, geographically speaking, Latin America. Exactly, Rick. Now, that's geographical. But what I love about your book is this sense of a cultural divide as well. And who could better explain this to uh, a North American like me than somebody like you, whose father is Peruvian and whose mother is American? Yes. Being born of a Peruvian father and an American mother and having grown up for the first 10 years of my life in Peru, and then, you know, catapulting to this country and trying to understand what that division in myself was, I've been trying to explain to Peruvians who Americans are for years, for my whole lifetime, and now in book form, trying to explain who Latin Americans are. I was fascinated in your book how you you had the challenge of explaining to your parents the cultural difference they had, and by, you know, crystallizing that, 
you can also explain to the rest of us the difference between Latin America and our culture here in the United States. Talk about how that worked for you, the, the challenge of helping your father, the Peruvian, better really psychoanalyze or understand your mother, the American. <laughs> well, that is sort of my life story, Rick, and it's a wonderful question because, you know, growing up, my father would throw up his hands and he would say, would you please tell your mother what I mean here? And what is she talking? Why doesn't she understand? Why doesn't she know X, Y, and Z? Like how to eat, how to pray, how to raise your children, how to walk through a house. You know, you never leave your house uh, barefoot or, or without your shoes on. My mother used to love to leave house, go into the garden without your shoes on. And my mother would have the same reaction. It was like, would you please explain to me what your what your father is thinking here? I don't understand it. And they adored each other. They loved each other more than life itself. But they didn't understand each other because the cultural differences were just that huge. Wow. So if you can just, in a very simple layman's terms, of course, it's a generalization if you simplify, but what is the cultural difference, the in my mind versus in the mind of a Latin American? What's the fundamental difference? Well, Americans are much more forthright. They also look to the future in a way that Latin Americans look to the past. And Latin Americans are far more conservative, reserved really about their life stories. They're more careful with uh, the family feelings. Just the act of writing a memoir, when I wrote a memoir, I guess about 20 years ago now, first of all, there are no memoirs. There are no memoirs in, in the Latin American sense. The, the United States is flooded with memoirs. Memoirs is a huge genre. So you don't tell your family stories. You don't share that sort of personal hmm. stuff. And just that captures, in a way, the, the very big difference, I think, in, in the way Americans think, hmm. which is much more open. And, and you're always sort of pointed to the future. And Latin Americans are always saying, well, that's not the way my grandfather did it, or that's not the way my parents did it. Oh, yeah. okay. Now, I, I got to uh, clarify one thing here because I'm careful because I don't want to be ethnocentric, but is that fair? The, the United States is America and everything else is Latin America? Yes. You know, my grandfather always used to say, what is it with the, the people of the United States of America? That, that's they, he was the first person I ever knew to refer to identity theft. And he said, basically, <laughs> I'm as just as American as anybody who calls themselves American in Chicago. But North Americans have robbed the, the name American. Okay, but are, are you saying we're getting away with it? And, and for purposes of uh, you know terminology, we can refer to people in the United States as Americans as opposed to people in Mexico who are Latin Americans? Oh, yeah, you bet. You bet. And that's the okay. way it is. That's just the way it is. He was harping against the wind. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And within Latin America, we've got Spanish and we've got Portuguese cultures. What kind of a divide does that toss into the mix? Yeah, it does have a divide. First of all, Portugal and Spain historically were rivals, you know, and there was a very big rivalry back at the point of the conquest in the late 1400s and considered themselves very different in spirit and nature. And I think if you do travel to Portugal and if you do travel to Spain, you see that sense. It's a very different character in the people and in, in the land itself and in the cultures. So start with that and start with the fact that the history is different in the sense that when there was a revolution in the Spanish-speaking Latin America against Spain, it was bloody. It was horrible. The wars of independence were wretched. You know, they killed a lot of people. They, they absolutely leveled cities. In Brazil, that never happened. 
Hmm. And that was because when the French invaded Portugal, the king and the queen and the whole entourage went off to Brazil. So the, the king and the queen were sitting in Brazil. And when the sort of winds of revolution came, the royalty of Portugal basically said, yeah, you can have your freedom. That's fine. Yeah. And we're sitting here. You know, It's okay. a very, very different sense. Maria Rama is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her book, Silver, Sword, and Stone, is now out in paperback. It demonstrates patterns from a thousand years of history that play out in the lives of Latin Americans today. Marie is the literary director of the Library of Congress and directs the National Book Festival. She occasionally hosts her own author interviews on C-SPAN. Now, in our culture, we're realizing there's an urban-rural divide. You look at voting patterns and so on, and that's kind of also rich and poor. Is there the same urban-rural dynamic going on in Latin America today? Oh, you bet there is. You bet there is. In in times of trouble, and Latin America has had a lot of trouble, a, a lot of civil war, revolutions, terrorist strikes, and all of that has produced a flood of people going into the urban areas and overpopulating mm -hmm. in the urban areas and looking for protection from the governments in the urban areas. Mm -hmm. And so what you have is there's this disconnect, there's a kind of centralized life and all the business of a country is very often focused in a few cities or maybe even one. You know, Marie, I was just in Guatemala and it really struck me that the government really is governing for the people of Guatemala City more yes. than for the people of Guatemala. And that's where the, the big shots are. That's where the lawyers are, you know, the elites. And you the rest bet. of the country is pretty much considered indigenous and a problem. Well, you've got it, Rick. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the case in, in Peru as well. I mean, you have a tremendous mm -hmm. percentage of the population in Lima. And the world revolves around Lima so that the people in the rural areas really do feel ignored, neglected, uh, underserved mm -hmm. in so many ways. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and uh, we're exploring different facets of the cultures of Latin America right now. Our guest is Marie Arana. She's the author of a book called Silver Sword and Stone. Marie, your book is Silver Sword and Stone, Three Crucibles in the Latin America Story. What, what, what does Silver Sword and Stone stand for? Silver stands for mining, for the extractive society, for the uh, 500 years of culture of taking things out of Latin America and sending them elsewhere. Uh, that's silver. You dig it out, you send it out. Sword is the very violent nature on which the entire region was built, uh, not only by the conquest, by the Spanish conquest, but by what went before in the indigenous times. That sword and stone is faith, the church, the uh, belief systems. And I call it stone because literally when one civilization took over another or one conquistador came in and took over the indigenous, they would slap their stone on top of the stone of the places of worship. So they would build their cathedral on top of a temple, literally, literally, and that's stone on stone. So that's silver sword and stone. I want to look at it in three levels. There's the pre-Columbian, pre-colonial, Aztec and Inca civilizations and so on. And then there's the time of Spanish conquistadors and later on American imperialism. And then there is the legacies of all that in contemporary politics. How did that work in the pre-colonial world before the Europeans came, the Aztecs and the Incas? In many ways, the silver, the sword, and the stone were all combined in one level of the hierarchy. I mean, the emperor of the Incas and the emperor of the Aztecs were 
both the military head, the head of the faith, in other words, a, a religious idol, a being to be worshipped, and they were also the the wealth of the country. Mm. So they were. It was all focused in one, in the indigenous world. You know how they say uh, religion is the opiate of the masses from a communist point of view, or mm -hmm. did the Incan rulers and the Aztec rulers, the power people, the people with all the silver and the swords, mm -hmm. did they use religion to keep the common people compliant? Indeed, they did. Indeed, they did, because the the one overweening mission and goal of an emperor, of the Inca emperor or the Aztec emperor, was to spread the word on the worship of the sun. So if there was another kind of worship that was in the process of conquest, the Inca and Aztecs would insist on converting the conquered tribes into their religion. So yes. Okay. Yeah. So then we got the conquistadors coming in, and we we know about the the Spanish that came in and and just uh, sort of basically turned Latin America into their quarry to just kind of take home all the riches, and it it spills right into modern times. I think with the American imperialism, and a lot of us have been to Latin America with the uh, intent of learning about American colonialism. Let's skip the conquistadors for a minute and talk about the impact of the United States. From your studies, uh, especially with your Peruvian heritage, how have American interests, the interests of the United States, played in to this silver sword and stone story that you're writing about in your book? Well, the United States of America, from the moment of its foundation, was always interested in spreading its power into Latin America. Thomas Jefferson said as much. John Adams said as much. John Quincy Adams said as much. They felt that eventually uh, Latin America would be theirs. And so that sort of mentality began very, very much in the founding of, of this country. But as time went on and Spain was ejected from Latin America and the republics were independent, from that very moment, starting in 1830 or so, uh, the American sort of corporation forces, the business interests, began to go into Latin America with United Fruit, with the mining companies, with any number of, of corporate inroads into, into Latin America to sort of take advantage of the resources and the natural resources of Latin America. Did you see religion working together with the sword and silver in this kind of economic imperialism? Oh, no, no doubt about it. I mean, if you're talking from, from the very beginning with the conquest, the conquistadors went in with their priests. And an interesting uh, development, we find that in Latin America, there has been this, this uh, tremendous move toward evangelism and evangelical faiths. And the reason mm -hmm. why, the reason why is because in, in a Catholic world, you suffer now and get your rewards in heaven, mm -hmm. right? In the evangelical message, it's, no, you can have your rewards now. And that has been so attractive to Latin Americans who have actually been, feel, many of them feel that they have been held down and allowed to be blessed as poor uh, mm -hmm. when, when the evangelical religions offer something else, something different, you know, riches now. So I'm, I'm a little bit confused about that. Evangelicals, I thought, counseled people to not be political and not demand economic justice, whereas liberation theology types, and that would be the Catholic Church, wanted it to be more political economic justice. 
Well, there's a difference in, in theory and in practice, because in practice, if you look at the, the big evangelical movements in Latin America now, they, they are huge churches that actually do promise that you will, you will go mm. from poverty to the middle class at the very least if you do as they say, and, and indeed people have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marie Arana, and her latest book is about Latin America, and it's called Silver, Sword, and Stone. Three Crucibles in the Latin American Story. Maria has also written a biography of Simone Bolivar, a memoir about her bicultural childhood called American Chica, and two novels set in her native Peru. You'll also see her byline on columns in the Washington Post and other publications. Her website is mariarana.net. Marie, today we've got all sorts of issues that are that are challenging societies across the hemisphere. We've got uh, racism. We've got migration, we've got gangs and drugs, we've got corruption, uh, we've got great economic inequality. When you look at Latin America today with all of these issues, how do you sort it out? Is it Are all of the countries in Latin America struggling with the same issues? Uh, how do these issues relate to silver, sword, and stone? When we look at it right now, contemporary issues. Thank you, Rick. The question is really important to me because what I have seen, if you go back in history and you really look with a critical eye, you see that there's a cycle and there's a constant cycle in Latin America. And it comes right out of the history. You have the history of, of oppression and then rebellion. And this is these pendulum swings from oppression to rebellion. And the whole system is, is built to keep uh, the lower classes and the poor down and the working class in its place. From the very moment that Spain left, the elites, the white elites took over, and it was more of the same, in other words. So this, this cycle of uh, repression and, and rebellion that goes on is something that Latin America has never been able to get over. And the reason it's not been able to get over it is because of the severe inequality and the lack of, frankly, of the very basic rule of law, which is so often mm. corrupted in Latin America. Mm. It's heartbreaking. You know, this is, it's a big book and it's a fascinating and complicated topic and it is our hemisphere and it's so fundamental to understanding our world these days. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk, but I would just like to finish our discussion with the uh, just my take on it is it just seems discouraging and it seems like the problems are intractable. What is there any hopeful takeaway that you can give us from Silver Sword and Stone? Yes, I think there is a hopeful takeaway. I think you see in the past, certainly in my lifetime, you've seen economic development that has been quite impressive. You've seen whole middle classes formed that were not there before. This is a very tenuous middle class because it, it always feels it can slide back into poverty very quickly. But the hope that I see is that more and more people are realizing the importance of these fundamental things that make for, for a strong civilization, a strong culture, and those things are the rule of law, education, and the eradication of corruption. Those three things are the most fundamental ways that uh, mm. Latin America can get on its feet. And I think, you know, you see glimmers of that. You see, I see people pushing for that now in a way that, passionately pushing for that in a way that I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I am full of hope. I, I took that away from my recent visit to Guatemala, the importance of good governance and educating the populace and getting rid of corruption. Uh, complicated now, of course, by COVID and climate change. But 
there is reason to hope, and there is reason for those of us uh, north of uh, the Rio Grande to remember we're all in this together. If we want to be safe here in North America, we need to invest in stability and the success of Latin America. Marie Arana, thank you so much for joining us and and, uh, your book, Silver, Sword, and Stone, Three Crucibles in the Latin American Story. Thank you so much, Rick. It's such a pleasure talking to you. We'll head back to the old world in a minute as we explore the lush scenery and cultural surprises of Galicia in the northwest corner of Spain. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. In Tuscany, we have a very distinct way to tell if somebody is from Tuscany Mm -hmm. is that they don't pronounce the hard C. Mm -hmm. So ca becomes ha. So if you want them to say a Coke with a short straw, they say una jojajola con la canucha corta. How would that be in Italian without the, with the C? Una Coca-Cola con la canucha corta. Yeah. And say it Tuscan. Una Coca-Cola con la canucha corta. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, we're not Americans. We're, noi siamo americani. Americani. Americani che bevono Coca-Cola. <laughs> okay. And another, t- another tongue twister? Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> I know one um, from Trent. No, but that one's not Tuscan. <laughs> no, I don't know a Tuscan tongue twister. Yeah, Trenta tre trentini, entrano a Trento, tutte trenta tre torterellando, oh my gosh. But the una hola 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 is the best one to show that you're a Tuscan. <laughs> You've just demoralized me. I can't learn anything, though. <laughs> That's okay. We'll get you some wine afterwards. <laughs> it helps. And then it'll roll right off your tongue. <laughs> Galicia is Spain's Celtic-flavored northwest corner. It includes the pilgrim destination of Santiago de Compostela, quaint villages, and a hardy rural heritage that offers a distinctly verdant option for a Spanish getaway. We're going to explore Galicia right now with Spanish guides Federico Garcia Barroso and Agustin Sarisa. Agustin and Federico, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you for you. welcoming us. Thank so, you. Federico, you're from Madrid, uh, but what's your connection with Galicia? Well, actually, my family name. We, we are all actually essentially my family from Madrid City, but our family name is Barroso. Barroso is coming from Galicia, northwest Spain. Okay. And uh, to you, if you think about Galicia, how does it distinguish from the rest of Spain? Well, I would say that Galicia is our secret garden, you know. It's one of those places in Spain you see that, that wow, you really enjoy life. People are super friendly, you see. It is not the stereotype of Spain. We don't really find there. The sun is not shining every day of the year. it's rainy and it's Celtic. It's, it's a, exactly. I mean, we have some Celtic roots in Galicia, you see, and, and it's a little bit rainy. But consequently, we have beautiful green mountains and rocky beaches and, and friendly people and seafood. And, and you know, uh, it's, it's... Lots to see and do, quite inviting. And Agustin, you're, you're from Basque country, which is right next to Galicia. Yes. What is your connection with Galicia? Well, I've been there many times for a long, long time. I like the nature in that part of the country. It's uh, beautiful. It's kind of a paradise uh, place uh, with all the green shades, the rolling hills, the rivers flowing, the coastline. Uh, it's been um, a big place for, even in the summer, it's uh, not as crowded in, as in mm. the rest of Europe even. Yeah. It's inexpensive. And in, it's inexpensive. Inexpensive, yeah, yes. Right. And it's a great place for enjoying the food, the wine, nature. So if you're thinking about the characteristics of Galicia, if you're vacationing there from neighboring parts of Spain, what do you think of in Galicia? Well, I'm thinking of the rural villages in the countryside. I'm thinking of the fishing villages. I'm thinking of the food, the seafood, the shellfish, the great white wine. There's the variety Alvarino. It's also well known. People enjoy it very much and we like it. It's refreshing. It has some connections with the white wine we produce in the Basque country. 
the Chacolí that some people are familiar with. The pilgrimage to Santiago would be a good reason to go there and go across the whole state of Galicia and get to know the people, as uh, Federica was saying, and get to know about this Celtic's uh, uh, heritage. So you mentioned uh, some of the villages are particularly charming and inviting. What are a couple of names of towns that we should remember? Well, um, on the Camino, you find Osebredo. Mm-hmm. That can be an interesting uh, town that I would recommend you to stop before reaching uh, Santiago and also passing Santiago, Finisterre, along the coastline. So everybody gets to Santiago, but you could go further to actually get to the coastline, and then you have some worthwhile stops. Yes, uh, the Camino can continue for three stages all the way to the coast, to the edge with the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, ah. and see actually the Campo de Estrellas, Compostela, the Starfield. The Starfield? Yes. Because why would you see it there? You mean the the uh, skies, the Milky Way? The Milky Way. That's it's better it. to see it away from the city? Yes. Yes, oh, okay. and be at the edge with the ocean. Oh, right at the edge of the earth of the ocean. And you said it's three stages beyond Santiago. Does that mean three three days of walking? Three days of walking, the pilgrimage. Okay. So it's, it's kind of a 20 miles a day of walk, and uh, yeah. you can continue to the very, very, very end. Federico, when we talk about Galicia, Augustine mentioned uh, Celtic influence. How does that show itself? I mean, first of all, this Galicia, it's the, the, the part of Spain in the northwest, it's a part uh, that is famous for its major city, Santiago de Compostela, and that's famous because people go there on this long pilgrimage. But apart from the pilgrimage, Galicia is ethnically different. It's, it's Celtic. How does that show itself in the people, in the temple of life, in the cuisine, and so on? Totally. I can tell you. I, I usually go every, every summer time I go to Galicia. My parents they have a beautiful house in Padron, not far from uh, Santiago, St. James, and, and the famous place of, of those uh, pimientos, those uh, Padron peppers. Yeah, it's all about the food. It's the quality of the food, you see. And ethnically, we have to find there in Galicia many blonde people with blue eyes, something that is not easy to find in other mm. places in Spain. So ethnically, it's so obvious that, you know, those people can have some Celtic roots, mm-hmm. you see. And you can really see that, that that's quite obvious. But it's all about the tempo. People live, you know, in an in a easier way. They have another pace, mm-hmm. which is wonderful, you see. It's just wonderful. They just go in different pace and people, you can see how people try to enjoy life, you see. I can feel that in Galicia. Is there a connection historically with Cornwall and Ireland because they're Celtic brothers and sisters? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can even tell you how nowadays they have some summer festivals with some Viking and Celtic roots that you can actually see. Yeah, yeah. Our guides to Galicia in northwest Spain are Agustin Cerisa, who lives further east along the coast in Basque country in San Sebastian. That's his home base for hiking, mountain bike, kayak, and surfing expeditions. And Federico Garcia Barroso, who lives in Madrid and has family connections to Galicia. When tourism reopens again, they'll be reintroducing American visitors to the highlights of their country, including the untouristy corners their fellow Spaniards escape to, like the region we're exploring right now, Galicia. If you think about the Celtic influence, Augustine, uh, describe some of the music... Uh, I remember it, it seemed like a cross between flamenco and river dance to me. You will hear a lot of bagpipes blowing. Bagpipes, yeah. Yeah, bagpipes mm-hmm. everywhere, and the dancing also has this uh, Celtic influence, something you've seen in other Celtics. Yeah. Celtic territories, that's something you'll see definitely. Yeah. And if you talk about the food, something rustic about Galicia's, the bread and the cheese. Yes, and also the beef, the beef meat, the cattle from Galicia is well known in the rest of Spain. And respected in Spain, huh? Yes, yes. Also the octopus with paprika pepper. That was something that they're, they're boiling it right in the markets. Yeah. They yeah. pull it out of the hot water and they chop, chop, chop. 
you just need to chop it, add the paprika, some olive oil, oh. and uh, you're ready. Oh. Just when you said that, my heart started pitter-pattering. I mean, because I, I forgot all about that until right now, but oh. those are the experiences. Federico, you're in the marketplace in Santiago de Compostela. Mm-hmm. What's an experience uh, that you might have if you're a good traveler in the market? Yeah, actually, what I love, the cheese, Galician cheese, is so soft and so good, and Galician bread. Nothing better than get a piece of bread and a piece of cheese, you see, and a nice glass of white wine, Albarino, a little bit of baked octopus with that soft paprika or those padron peppers, you see, the food is so good and so easy to eat anywhere. Right there, it's so elemental. It's just beautiful local ingredients with hmm. tradition. Hmm. Oh, Des- yeah. Describe the octopus to me when you go to oh, the market. The, You've got the, the man cooking it right there, boiling yeah. it. Actually, we call some. We have some places that are called pulperias. Would be a kind of a octopus place where they just bake. <laughs> you see, they just boil. Excuse me, octopus. You see, and people are just actually have summer festivals about it specifically about they, the they way cut it with scissors, the they? way of cutting the octopus with those scissors. You see, and to eat and to share. You see, boiled octopus and baked potatoes with a little bit of that soft, not a spicy by the way, just soft paprika. Yeah. Yeah. You see, and that is just an excuse to socialize, to meet friends, to mm. eat octopus and wine. You so see, you get, a, you get a wooden platter. The man yep. cuts it with scissors. The octopus is just snip, 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 exactly. snip, snip. Bunch yeah. of little bite-sized pieces mm-hmm. of octopus, and you got a Slides. toothpick. Bam! Exactly, and that is so so easy for everybody. Something wow. else in the market mm. you can buy persebish, which are the the barnacles, and they're quite expensive. But you buy it in the market, and they're much more affordable. Hmm. And then next door, there's a little uh, cafe that will boil your persebish for you. Exactly. That is what they do. It's actually quite common. And barnacles are quite expensive all over Spain. But if you just go there, you go to those markets, you can get those barnacles. That is something, a kind of experience, I guess, for any American or Canadian traveler in Spain, you see. And it's, it's delicious. Take them. Go to the place, boil those barnacles, eat them with a nice glass of wine, and keep So you take moving. them to the, to the little bar or the cafe, and yeah. they, they expect to take what you bought in the, in the market, and they'll boil it oh, for wow. you, put it on their plate. Absolutely. You sit on their table. Mm-hmm. You buy their wine, yeah. and you've got a treat. Yeah. Augustine, explain the persebish. Persebish, the barnacles are growing in the rocks, and it's a very difficult and dangerous thing to go down the cliff and start collecting all those barnacles from the rocks. If you see any pictures or if you have a chance to see a video about these people that are risking their lives to collect them in bags and then come back to the, to the to land, and so that's why they're so expensive. So you pay a lot of money because people risked their lives to get you those barnacles. Because yes, the waves are crashing yeah. into those rocks, so they have to be quick as the tide goes out or as the waves are turning back to go collect the, the barnacles and then escape from the waves. And If there was an award for the food that is both the ugliest and the tastiest, I think the barnacles would be in yes. competition. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> they say there's yeah. a kind of a small penis. So, <laughs> small <laughs> penis, penis, little penis. They do look like a gross little penis, and you break it off of the shell. Yes. You break the uh, kind of the na- the nail, the nail, yeah. and then you yeah. peel it and you suck on it. So, <laughs> I mean, and it's very tasty. <laughs> Let's stop there because up until now, I I, I have a, a delightful feeling about the, the barnacles. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Agustin Sarisa and Federico Garcia Barroso, and we're talking about Galicia in the northwest of Spain. Agustine, I know that you love the outdoors, and there's some rugged coastline in Galicia. Is there much of a surfing uh, industry there? Yes, there is um, surfing on the beaches, there's sea kayaking, and other water sports that can be played in these big rias, these long rias that are rivers that are going inland a long way, so they were protected from the biggest storms. Okay. And then you find beaches which are very isolated. You can just go there and hang out on your own 
where you can go surfing too. Now, I want to talk about the Camino de Santiago. That means the way, a pilgrimage, back in the Middle Ages, all the way to Santiago. And Santiago was named for St. James. And when the Muslim Moors took over Spain in the 8th century, all of Christendom had to unite and try to push the Moors back into Africa. And my understanding is they just said, well, St. James is there, and he's buried in Santiago. Everybody on their horses, let's go, you know, uh, to try to get a reason for everybody to rally around that. So they pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed back, and now they've freed it. It's Santiago de Compostela, and that is the destination of these pilgrimages to get to the tomb of St. James. Federico, tell us just briefly about that pilgrimage trail. Yeah, it is the story of, well, we, we, we think... From those 12 apostles, you see, St. James was the one who had to evangelize Spain. We know that. But we have no historical proof to say that he was physically in Spain. We assume mm-hmm. that his bones were found there eight centuries after his death. And the Milky Way, in Latin language, Campus Estelae, Compostela, mm. means the Milky Way is telling everybody else that down there something important is happening. The bones of St. James, obviously, as a political answer to those crusades, I mean, those, those Islam people in southern Spain. So that would fire days. up the Christians. They'd want to go down there and free the bones of St. James to get that back into Christian territory instead of Muslim territory. But today, people walk across northern Spain. They walk all the way yeah. from Paris or the Pyrenees Mountains, yep. and they get to Santiago, and their goal is Santiago. And there we've got the tomb of St. James. And to be on the square in Santiago, which is a great town anyways, mm-hmm. and to see these pilgrims come in and to be overwhelmed with, with joy after they've finished their journey, whether they're journeying as Christians, Catholics, Orthodox, whatever, or just people that want to be out and get closer to themselves or nature or God in their own way. It's an amazing uh, phenom. And they get there. And then what is the ritual when you get to the cathedral? Well, the ritual, regardless if you're a religious person or not, is just to finally find that the Obra Doiro Square, and you face that spectacular facade and the big cathedral, and then St. James is waiting for you, you just go, and you meet the saint, and you, in a humble way, you just say thank you to St. James Santiago, you see, and it's, that is actually the end of this, of this uh, process, you see, that is it's something really, really magic, really beautiful. Augustine, what do you, what, to you, what does the, the pilgrimage to Santiago mean? The pilgrimage, um, for many people, is the moment for uh, soul-searching. 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 Yeah. So yeah. that's what happens for, you know, many people do it. They've taken a break in their lives, and they were like to... They have, some of them have religious um, reasons, some others they don't, but they all want to go into the inner selves. And uh, think, as you walk in and you're, you're visiting these small towns, all these churches and monasteries and convents where the pilgrims, the original pilgrims were stopping, people have the time to think, relax, and plan the future. And it was a very big deal in the Middle Ages, then it died out, and now it's become a very big deal again. And there's refuges all along the way where you can sleep cheaply, and there's very friendly people that'll serve the pilgrims and the hikers. And the spirit in Santiago de Compostela, the, the culmination of that journey, is really just to experience it, whether you're a pilgrim or not. It's a be- I like to be on that square in the morning when the, when the pilgrims arrive. We're talking about Galicia, and it's also part of northern Spain. Just very briefly, we've got Cantabria. Is that part of Galicia, or what is Cantabria? It's actually, we'll talk about the Cantabric range. It, it is uh, northern Spain right. is essentially the Cantabric range. We go from the Basque country, we keep going to Cantabria, then Asturias, and finally Galicia. Geog- okay, so different regions in the north of Spain. With very similar weather, geographical conditions, uh, people, you see, but just divided in three sections. Yeah. And the Picos de Europa, Augustine, what is this sort of natural wonderland in the north of this Spain? This is a uh, Sierra mountain range, super close to the ocean, mm-hmm. can be seen from 
the coastline. You can be on the beach and see the snow caps of the mountains. Beautiful place can be compared to the Pyrenees Mountains. Beautiful place for hiking, enjoying the outdoors, and enjoying the cheese there, the cheese of Cabrales, for example. Wow. And one thing you've got in this area are the caves of Altamira, prehistoric caves. Yes. And um, tell me, that that's something very very unique in Spain. Yes, it is. These are caves that are, have uh, these uh, paintings, archaeological paintings dated to 15,000 years. and uh, 15,000 years old. Yeah. Five times yeah. as old as the pyramids. Yes. Whoa. Yes. And yes. you can actually, is it, a, is it a copy cave or the original it's, cave? It's a copy cave. So there is the original cave and then there's a very, very accurate copy cave because everybody can't go in and see the original one or it will, the humidity and the excitement and the flashbulbs will all do the, the damage. Now you can set an appointment. There are really, there are really limited uh, tickets to see the original one. Yeah. But what you find in Altamira, just... Um, a few um, minutes away from this town of uh, Santillana del Mar, you can see this um, archaeology museum and the copy of the cave. So that's Altamira, and you can see that also when you're exploring the north of Spain. Federico? Yeah, Altamira is really unique, but we have to say that the, the copy, the replica, is really, really amazing, yeah. really well done. And you, when I go to those copy caves, because they the same thing in France, mm. I do not feel like I've been denied the opportunity. It's a beautiful, it's a mystical, almost spiritual experience to, to be there with human beings who painted something 15, 20,000 years ago. There is a, Rick, there is a movie um, played just a short time ago by Antonio Banderas called Altamira. Uh-huh. It's telling you the, specifically the moment in those 1800s, the moment in which they discovered that gem. And they just thought that that guy was just cheating the others, you see, and, and his little daughter said, oh, daddy, I can see bulls here. I can see bulls. And they then discovered that gem, you know. That moment, you see, in which they discover that is also fascinating. And we can go there today. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been discussing Galicia in the northwest of Spain. Our guides are Federico Garcia Barroso and Agustin Sarisa. And Agustin, there's an actual language. When I go to an ATM machine in Spain, one of the buttons next to España, next to yes. Castilian, yes. next to uh, Catalan, is Gallego. Gallego, correct. This is a, a Romance language. It's a, a kind of a, a mix between Portuguese and a Spanish language. Okay. And is it, uh, what is the, the history of that language as far as how people speak it, Federico? Well, we are all in Spain, we speak several languages. We all have a common denominator, which is Castilian, Spanish, okay? But then we also have Basque, Catalan, and Galician, which is, by the way, phonetically, is a combination of Portuguese and Spanish, but it's actually an own language. It's not actually a dialect, okay? Is Madrid Very, concerned if people are speaking this because Madrid wants everybody to be Spanish? Uh, uh, well, if, no, right, right now, actually, people speak fluently, you see, about languages without any kind of prejudices and without any kind of problems. And I, actually, when I go to Galicia, I, tell, I go there many times, I meet my friends speaking Galician. I answer in Spanish language because I don't speak the language, but we perfectly understand each other without any problem. Well, I'd like to say thank you to both of you, and I'd like to say it in the Gallego language. Uh, Agustin, how do we say that? Mm. Thank you would be... Gracias. Mo- muitas gracias. gracias. Muitas gracias, which is quite similar to Portuguese. Yeah. Muitos gracias. Yeah, not, yeah. not muchas gracias, but <laughs> muitos. 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 Exactly. All right, well, muitos gracias. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Gracias. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Kazmara Hall. Amara Kitnikon uploads the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate relations. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Sarah McCormick for editing help this week. You'll find more to the show on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, 
I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.